Yes, thanks, brother. We, we do have a very different culture at the point of saying nice things about people. Uh, you've got lots of nice things to say about yourselves. <laughs> we live at the other end of the world and the other end of where compliments. If anyone compliments us, we know that they are wanting something. <laughs> Always put your hand on your wallet as soon as they compliment you. It must mean something evil. So, uh, on evangelism I have three different things for us this evening. Um, uh, we're going to work through. The first one is what is evangelism and it's uh, more of a Bible study and the turning to God's word on that whole subject. Uh, the second has to do with a training program in evangelism and the third has to do with the relationship of evangelism and the church. Uh, if we don't get to the third one it doesn't matter and I don't mind about you interrupting much although it'll be easier to interrupt in the third one and not so easy in the second one and very hard in the first one because I talk quickly. So the first one is actually connected to 2 Corinthians 4. For what is evangelism? Let's start off there. Evangelism uh, is evangelizing and it comes from the word evangel which is the word gospel. It's gospeling, that's what it is. That is, fundamentally, it is proclaiming. There, there are a series of verbs that go with it. Uh, saying, preaching, proclaiming, declaring. They're all verbal words, and they're all about declaring a message. That is, evangelism is not helping little old ladies across the street, especially the ones who want to go across the street. Uh, that, that's not evangelism. It, it's a good thing, it's a right thing to do, but it's not evangelism. And that you do it in the name of Jesus is wonderful, but it's not evangelism. Evangelism's got to do with speaking. It's got to do with talking, proclaiming, declaring. And because the message that we declare is divine, it's powerful. It's the powerful word of God. Powerful to create the universe, powerful to save the nations, powerful in your mouth and in my mouth, if we're saying God's words. See, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we read, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? That out of my mouth can come the word of God, which is so powerful and active it can bring people to faith in Christ Jesus and go on transforming, go on being at work in changing us just out of the folly of my mouth because it's the truth, the wisdom of God's word. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 he speaks of the letters of Christ the transforming change that happens in Christian people hearing the very word of God for they are like letters of Christ because Christ has written on their hearts transforming them from one degree of glory to another it's the proclamation that changes the world by changing people in its proclamation and to this end the proclamation requires us to live consistently with the message we preach the message is the message, whether we're consistent with it or not, but the gospel is at work in us, transforming us to be more and more like Jesus, who is the very object of our message. And so the way we preach, and indeed the way we live, should be consistent with the message we proclaim. Therefore, I pick it up in chapter, two, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore... Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The way he preaches the gospel, the way he lives the gospel, has to be the gospel. But he's not preaching the gospel by living this way. To preach the gospel is to speak the gospel. You live consistently with the gospel, well so you should. But to evangelise means you're going to actually tell people about it. You're going to discuss it with people. And if you're going to be preaching the gospel to others, then the way you live has to be consistent with, the way you, with what you're saying. You can't have two messages, one coming out of your mouth and the other coming out of your life. That's, that's not all. He preached it, he lived it. And that's what we've got to do in following his example. Now what we proclaim is spelt out for us there in verses 4 and 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now let's take those two verses. And if you've got uh, your own Bible, I'd encourage you to mark them because they're really good memory verses. And if you've got one of the church Bibles, it's better not to mark it. Uh, just, yeah, and you might, because the next person who picks it up might find it beneficial. But uh, I didn't tell you to mark it. Now, <laughs> let's take it. It's not ourselves. That is, it's not about us. We're not the subject of the gospel. We're not the important parts of the gospel or evangelism. It's not my ministry or my church or my gospel. It's not about me. For it's about Jesus Christ as Lord. And so it can't be about me because it's about him. Three things, Jesus, Christ, Lord. But actually I'll include the as as well. Jesus is that particular man of history. The Jewish man whose name means saviour, born of the family David in the town of Bethlehem. The man who went around preaching the gospel himself, the gospel of the coming of the kingdom, who was doing good, the kind of good that the Old Testament prophets said that he would be doing when he comes to bring in his kingdom, but was teaching his disciples of his imminent arrest and trial and execution as well as his resurrection, and was so betrayed by wicked men and crucified by the Romans at the behest of Jews. That Jesus we're talking about, the Jesus of, of history, the Jesus of fact. And it's the Christ, Jesus Christ. Now Christ is not his surname. You don't look him up in the telephone book under J. Christ in <laughs> Bethlehem Street, Nazareth. That's not his surname. The word Christ means Messiah. Uh, Mashiach is the Hebrew, which we kind of translate into Messiah, transliterate into Messiah. The Greek word for that is Christ. The word means anointed because they anointed kings. They still do. You don't have kings, you don't have queens, you just don't know what you're missing out. But we in the Royal <laughs> British Commonwealth that we have, we have a queen. She's been around for a long, long time. But I'm old enough to remember her coronation in 1953. Hands up those who remember the coronation of the queen. There you go. Oh, one or two. It, it, it hits the media whenever she's around. And part of the current, I was a very, very small child. Please let this be known. And when, when she was uh, crowned, our school went into enormous procedures about what was going to happen, how it was going to happen, and who goes where, and all the rest of it. And one of the things I was told is she was going to be anointed with oil, because this, is, this is, goes right back to King David and the like. And so, as a small boy, I was looking forward, though a little mystified, about how a pint of sump oil would be poured down her head without ruining the dress and everything else. But that was the bit I wanted to see. And when I actually saw a little drop of oil 
it was a complete anticlimax. I thought it was a dud coronation, this one. Let's move on to the next monarch, who I've been waiting for a long time since, and I'm not so keen to get the next one anyway. She's a nice woman, the one. She's a quite a believer, actually, the, the, the Queen, and speaks up for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ very firmly of her own on occasions, which is, uh, which is lovely, actually. But uh, that's the Christ. It means the anointed. It means the King. And this one, of course, is the long-awaited king, the Messiah, that they've been waiting for for a thousand years when David was told that he was coming. And so he's accused of being the Christ and he started to tell his disciples about his execution when he accepted the title from them. For he's not just the Christ, he's the crucified Christ, isn't he? Which is a kind of contradiction in terms. Because if you think it's bad, they're going to pour some oil on you when you become crowned, when you become appointed. Can you imagine the news that you're going to be assassinated when you get appointed? You know, come to your coronation, we're going to assassinate you. Because that was the message Jesus told, which Peter found unimaginable. This won't happen to you. Because he was not thinking the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of man. That Christ, Jesus the Christ, as the Lord. The word Lord we don't like particularly because it means a ruler. It means an owner, a master. In the Old Testament word, uh, had the overtones of Yahweh because they didn't use the word Yahweh. They, they saw it in their Hebrew and always said the Lord instead. Which is why in the Old Testament you see the word Lord is printed in capital letters sometimes because in the Hebrew the name of God is there, Yahweh. See, I'm a man, my name is Philip. The Philip is very, excuse me, <coughs> oh, sorry about the t it's a recording, that's even a really bigger problem. I've got a friend in England who was nearly killed by an Australian preacher who uh, coughed and blew his nose right into the microphone. <laughs> My friend in England was driving down a motorway at the time and changed three lanes uh, without thought at that moment. However, he lived to tell the story. Now, where was I up to? Well, there's one here, brother, and there's only one spot, but thank you. I'll, I'll wink when I need it up. Um, uh, the, so the word Lord has an overtone of Yahweh, of God, by his name, but it means the king, the slave owner. The master, oh, that's a very naughty word, isn't it? Uh, politically incorrect word, isn't it? We shouldn't mention it, even though it's in the Bible. Let's cut it out. You'll get rid of that word. In fact, our translator has got rid of the word. Uh, but more of that in a moment. But it's the Lord. By his death and resurrection, he's risen to be the right hand of God, having conquered the evil one and his accusations against his people, having paid for their sins, having turned aside God's righteous anger against their sinfulness and risen in victory over all, the King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, ruler of rulers, he is the Lord and master over everything in the universe. I see that you're having an election. We're having an election too national election like you're having a national you haven't seen that we're having one have you <laughs> ah, that's typical anyway we've seen that you're having one quite colorful one isn't it <laughs> and I, I i was over here some years ago and you're having another one and uh, i noticed the excitement that came in the debates it was uh, clinton versus uh, anyway somebody that he beat obviously and they, everyone got very excited about it and I couldn't quite understand your excitement because it's a cultural problem this a difference and a bloke sidled over to me as I was in this conference about 30 clergymen who were really getting worked up about the election and this bloke said to me what do you make of it and I said not much and he said no nor do I I said I can't work out why they're so excited about these people becoming their rulers they seem to me a bad choice either way and so and he said, yeah. He said, I'm a Canadian. <laughs> he said, we're different to the Americans. He said, the Americans vote people in, we vote people out. <laughs> now, he and I, you see, we're both in the British Commonwealth. We know Australians never vote anybody in. We only ever vote people out. We've gone through seven prime ministers in the last six years. 
We get rid of ours, you see. We, you actually think that these people coming in are going to do something. We're worried they're going to do something. <laughs> the last thing we want. We don't want them to make the world better. We're just assuming they're going to make it worse. So we just, you know, we're always on the voting out. But who would you vote in to rule over us forever? You see, you don't do that. You've got them on a four-year tenure, haven't you? Because that's the nature of democracy. Democracy is not the rule of the people. Democracy is the rule that gets rid of people without civil wars. That's what it is. It's the best form of government that's available because it's the only form of government that enables you to get rid of your ruler without a civil war. Every other form, you've got to go and shoot them, assassinate them, or have a war or something rather to get rid of them. But we've got this system devised. In four years' time, you're sacked. <laughs> I think one of your contenders at the moment is very good at sacking people, isn't he? Anyway, <laughs> but that's, that's democracy, you see. Democracy does not trust anybody with power. That's the nature of democracy. But the nature of autocracy, the nature of rule of kings is that they have all the power. This is the king of kings. This is the lord and master over all. Yeah, but that's because he died for us and rose again. He paid the penalty for us and he is indeed our God and our maker. That is why we want to have him as our Lord. Do we really want him as our Lord? You know, the national anthem of human sinfulness that comes out of America, that has been written in America, is of course Frankie Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. I've had some ups, I've had some downs, I've got some regrets, there's been some bad times, some good times, but the thing that makes it right is, I did it my way. We could burst into a little round of it now, couldn't we? But no musicians, the only thing that stops us. But I reckon we most likely could get all the way through remembering all the words, because it has been sung so often and so many times, and in karaoke bars, it is one of the pop favourites that people have, to do it my way. That's the very nature of human sinfulness. And it's the exact opposite to saying, I want to live with the Lord, not me. But what we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord. Our Lord and the Lord of the universe. Look, let's, uh, just to show you that this is the gospel, flip back over to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. And then he tells you about it, which he promised beforehand through the prophets of the Holy Scriptures. Concerning, you got there, Romans 1.3? The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Well, he had to be, he had to be David's son, because that's the royal family. And who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. The gospel is the declaration of the lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus as the Messiah and King. And so you can summarize the gospel because it is only a summary as the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, some people preach Jesus as Saviour as if he is not the Lord. But if he's not the Lord, he cannot save you. For he saves us by conquest, conquest of sin, conquest of Satan, conquest of death. It's as Lord that he saves you. You can't have Jesus as your Saviour if you don't have him as your Lord. And some people preach Jesus as Lord without him being your Saviour. And you can't have that either. Because if he doesn't save you from your, from your sin, then his lordship will mean your condemnation. You can't work your way to heaven by obeying everything of your Lord. It's our Lord who saved us. So Jesus Christ as Lord is a summary of the gospel. Now come back to 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. For he returns in that verse to tell you of what we do, where we fit in. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. If you're using the ESV, you'll see on the word servants, there's a little number five or some little number like that, which goes down to the footnote, designed for all people under the age of 35. Just a minute while I get it in clear focus here. Bond servants it has down there. Bond servants. Well, actually, the word is slaves. That's the word. But it's politically incorrect to have the word slave in your Bible anymore, so we've got rid of that. You see, you've got a politically correct Bible. You didn't know that? Well, you have. But that's all right, because slave is a slightly misunderstanding word because of the emotions connected with it. In the ancient world, there were servants and there were slaves. Servants were free to give their service to whomever they wished, and if they didn't like, they could move on to another boss and the like, and they got paid for their work. Slaves were in bond, and you can't just change your boss. You were owned by the boss in the sense of your labour was owned. Roman slavery was not the same as, as uh, American slavery or the slave trade out of Africa in the 18th century. There are quite, quite great differences between those. and That's why we don't use the word here, which is there in the Greek text. It's Roman slavery we're talking of. Some of the Roman slaves were very powerful, rich people. In fact, the treasurer of the whole uh, Roman Empire at one stage was a slave. It was a technical legal term. But it meant that you weren't free to do whatever you wanted to do. You had a master. That's what a slave had. All slaves had masters. You can only think of Roman slaves in terms of Charlton Heston rowing in a, uh, a trireme in the, and being whipped and sweat and all that kind of thing. Well, there were some slaves like that as well. It just meant, though, that you had a master. You weren't free. And so bond servants, not a bad word. You see, my wife was a slave. Uh, you mightn't have this kind of slavery in America, but we have it in Australia. Uh, my wife was a slave, and I was her redeemer. Um, I, I point this out to her from time to time. <laughs> I like to mention it just, yeah, just at those critical moments when you're on the back foot, you know, and you need a bit of... Uh, anyway, I do mention to her. You see, she went through university on a teacher's college scholarship. And uh, in those days, the teacher's college scholarship meant that she, all the fees were paid and she was given an allowance as well. But after she finished, she had to work for the Department of Education for five years. And during those five years, they could send her to any part of the state of New South Wales, which is as, um, as big as Texas. Um, they could send her anywhere to any country town at 24 hours notice for five years, you see. And she was therefore a bonded servant. She was in a bond. She had to pay, to get out of it, she had to pay a huge amount of money, which she couldn't afford because they kept the salary low enough to make sure she couldn't. Uh, it was the government, after all. Uh, you see why we vote our politicians out. Anyway, <laughs> she was a slave for five years. However, however, there was a little couple of little clauses in there, specially designed for women because the feminists retell history and they leave out the ways in which we used to favour women rather than oppress women. If you're a woman and you were married, they couldn't send you anywhere except where your husband was. If you're a man and you were married, they could send you wherever they wanted. But a woman, she could not be sent away from her husband. So by marrying her within the five years, she couldn't be sent anywhere. And once you were with child, then the bond was cancelled completely. Now that was for the women. If the women had children, a baby, uh, pregnant, they didn't have to teach anymore. If a man was pregnant, he didn't have to teach anymore. He would, no, well that didn't happen all that often, <laughs> not where we are. Um, I don't know if you've got this new method up here, but we, we fairly keep it to the women that side. But, and so, by marrying her and by making, by getting her, I was her redeemer. You see, I released her from her bondage and her slavery. Right? Now that is that's slavery. It's you're not free. We are not free from a lord. If you say Jesus is your lord, you are saying you are a slave, because that's the other side of a, a lord that doesn't have a slave is not much of a lord. It's like a shepherd. Oh, good, how many sheep do you have? None. <laughs> what makes you a shepherd? Well, I feel like one. You know, I mean, a shepherd has sheep. A lord has slaves. It just goes with the territory of what it means. Jesus Christ as my lord. 
says something about me as his slave, which means I can no longer sing, I did it my way. See the difference? Now, it's truly offensive. It was offensive in Jesus' day. But it's true of Jesus himself. Go across to Philippians. Can we find Philippians? It's just to the right somewhere. I just keep turning and suddenly it appears at the top of my sheet. If you've got a telephone, you can find it that other way, whatever that way is. Those smartphones, they're so smart, aren't they? To Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind, 2, 5. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. See the word, little footnote 3, bond servant again, slave. Jesus himself became a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember Mark 10:44, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember how Jesus took the towel and washed the disciples' feet? That was the activity of a slave. Although a Jewish slave didn't have to do that because it was considered beneath the dignity of even a slave, which Jesus did. But back to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. But what we proclaim is our, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Whose slaves? Yours, says Paul. The Corinthians. Paul was enslaved to the Corinthians. He was living now for their salvation. He was laying down his life for their salvation. He was following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life as a slave for the salvation of other people. And so you see it in chapter 4 verse 12 there. Death is at work in us, life in you. But why was he the slave to other people? Well, our verse in verse 5, we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Because he is the real Lord, he wants us to serve other people. That is how we serve him, by serving others. That's why we're their slaves. That's why we lay down our lives for them. It's to, to please and satisfy our real Lord, Jesus, who lived and died for other people's salvation and wants us to be like him living and dying for other people's salvation. And just as he enslaved himself even to the point of the cross for our salvation, he wants us to enslave ourselves for the salvation of other people. And so it's in obedience to him for whom we live that we give our lives to others. Which is why in the work of evangelism we don't lose heart. It's why we it's why we have denied, we've given up, renounced, as he says in verse 2, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or temper. We don't do it in a way that is unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. That would defeat the very purpose of it. And it's why, even though we might live a dreadful life like Paul's, back there in chapter 4, verse 8, afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, why it might be really difficult to do evangelism, that's all right. Because God will bring the victory through our life. We lay down our lives in death to bring resurrection life to others. We're following Jesus, you see. Crucifixion is our middle name. That's the route we're going if we're going to be in preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the fact that you're no good at it is wonderful. It's really good that you're no good at evangelism. You see, what I've discovered is two people don't like evangelism. Two kinds of people. Non-Christians don't like it because we're telling them to repent and stop living the way they are. They don't like it. And Christians don't like it because we're terrified and we don't think we're any good at it. So the one thing that Christians and non-Christians agree about is we don't like evangelism. <laughs> but our way is really silly. No, no, that you're no good at it is good. Because, verse 7, we have this treasure, the gospel, 
in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, if I was really good at it and people got converted, they'd say, oh, well, of course, Philip Jensen, he converts people left, right and centre. He's such a wonderful speaker. He's such a good-looking... Now that you mention it, no, he's such a, you know, and all these kinds of things. But the fact that he's, he's not really so impressive and yet people get converted shows the power is not in him. The power is in the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you don't feel really good at evangelism, great. You've got great potential. Right? That's the first step. If you think you're really smash hot at evangelism, that's a great shame because you'll get in the way of the gospel doing its work. Isn't it? It's fascinating, isn't it? It's the exact opposite of what most people think about these things. And so his very life exemplifies the gospel, which is why he's got to live the gospel. And the way you live the gospel is by laying down your life for other people. I don't want to preach the gospel. See, I'm going to climb on a plane in a couple of days' time that's going to take 14 hours to cross the Pacific. I really hope there's no one sitting next to me. If there is someone living sitting next to me, I hope he doesn't speak English. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spare the gospel with a person. I don't want the inconvenience. I don't want to have to talk to them for 14 hours. I, don't, I just want to get in the, in the plane and zone out. That's what I want. Movies, food, sleep, and somehow arrive. That's all I'm interested in. But yet, that's living for myself. <laughs> that person may be going to hell without the gospel. And I'm worried about missing out my movie. <laughs> See how self-centred that is? Mm -hmm. And so I get there and I sit down next to him and he's a really clever bloke who knows so much more than I do and he studied it thoroughly. What, who can I be to talk to him about the gospel? I can be the person who's got the very words of God in my mouth. That's who. The words that created the universe and can save his soul. That's who's sitting next to him. And so I've just got to have confidence in the message. The message to proclaim is the declaration that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Saviour and Judge. For with Jesus comes the kingdom and righteousness, mercy and forgiveness, rebirth and eternal life. It's the message we live by. It's the message we die by. For if we live, we've got to believe it, we must live it. And if we live, we must speak it. And therefore we make it our aim always to please Jesus by serving other people with the message of the gospel. The people who are unconcerned about the lost are generally the lost. If you've been saved, you'll know the wonder of God's grace and mercy and would want it for any and everybody else you ever meet. But it's always painful for gospel preaching requires me to put my neck out, to actually take risk. I've got a friendship. If I preach really what I believe to them, they may drop me as a friend. Yep. And if I don't, they may never hear the salvation that Jesus has won lose your friend that's the answer to that isn't it so you see what evangelism is about in the bible here it's not an optional extra for the saved it's what our lord wants us to do that's how he wants us but it does mean enslaving yourself to others putting yourself out for them that's what it always means now there is the first of those three talks. Um, the second one, I think it'd better if we do run this little video because I don't have to do it. Then we'll move to the question time and if we've got time, I'll tell you about the evangelism in the church and 10 points on that, which is fairly simple. But because of this, we have invented training programs. Oh, there is. Training programs called Two Ways to Live which are aimed to help Christians understand the gospel in its simplicity. Very difficult to make it this simple and yet accurate. What does it mean to have Jesus Christ as Lord? What does it mean that he saves us? What to make it simple and accurate, but also memorable, so that 
when you're on the bus, when you're on the plane, when you're in the train, when you're standing in the queue. Oh, you guys never get on buses, do you? Sorry. <laughs> buses are big things that carry lots of people. When you get on wherever it is, when the person next to you says, oh, my life's in a mess, I wonder what. You know how to explain the gospel to them. And so we've created a very simple system of gospel explanation, which can be done on a napkin in a, in, a, in a restaurant or a cafe. And in fact, I have done it in, in restaurants and cafes. And so we've got a, on the video now, you'll see someone drawing out the gospel and speaking it out. There are a couple of spare chairs here. There are some chairs over there. Oh, don't draw attention to them, please, please. But <laughs> there, there's a couple further down and we'll put more out for you. That right? Are we ready to go with the... Go for it. The text of Two Ways to Live. God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 4.11 But is that the way it is now? We all reject the ruler, God, by trying to run life our own way without him. But we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Romans 3, 10 to 12. What will God do about this rebellion? God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. God's justice sounds hard, but because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule. Yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 can we stop it? But that's all not six all. pictures are up. God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler You'll of the world. You'll have to talk to them to do it. Jesus has conquered death, now gives new life, and will return to judge. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1, 3. Well, where does that leave us? The two ways to live. Our way. Reject the ruler, God. Try to run life our own way. Result? Condemned by God, facing death and judgment. God's new way. Submit to Jesus as our ruler. Rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. Result? Forgiven by God, given eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John 3.36 which of these represents the way you want to live? There we go. It's a very simple little presentation, right? But notice that there are the six pages that you, you six little boxes you put on the uh, uh, on the one napkin, on the one piece of paper, and it's a method of leading people to Christ. You see, if someone did say to you, good sir, what must I do to be saved? Would you know what to say? This method teaches you what to say. We're just reaching that point right at the end there. But it takes you through the gospel. And you can see in the six pages that are there how the first one and the fourth one look alike. But the fourth one has Jesus as the man. See, the first Adam and the second Adam are there in those two pictures that you have there. And it takes you through six great doctrines. Uh, creation is the first one. Sin is the second one. Judgment is the third. The atonement is the fourth one. The resurrection is the fifth one. And then the choice of repentance and faith is given in the last one. 
or the command to repent and have faith. But it also, you may not have noticed when he was speaking, because you just noticed the Australian accent, but you may not have noticed, but we didn't use religious jargon either. We didn't use the word sin, uh, except when quoting the Bible. We didn't use the word sin. We talked about rejecting and rebelling against God. We didn't use the word faith. We talked about submitting to God. We didn't use uh, the word creation. We talked about God made the world. It means exactly the same thing. But if you start talking about God created the world, you're inevitably going to have a long discussion about evolution and creation. And there's nothing wrong with having that discussion except you'll never get to Jesus. And our message is Jesus Christ as Lord. That, that's where we want to get to. So we don't want to get sidetracked onto other issues. So we've chosen the wording to avoid jargon, to avoid religious in-talk, and to avoid distractions from keeping the message flowing to where we want to go. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is king, is he yours? Which is, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's, that's the message that we're preaching and that's the message that this is taking us through. Now, what we do is we have a training program which helps people go through in small groups and to actually learn it off by heart. Now, the little visual drawings, you see, aid your memory as well as mean that you can control the conversation. As you sit down there and you just draw up six boxes and you say, I've got six things to say to you. No one is so rude at number two to say, well, I've seen enough. They say, well, what's in the rest? And so you're able to present the whole gospel, this mechanism. It's a very simple mechanism to control the conversation, to lead people towards Jesus and the challenge in the last box. And you learn to say it off by heart means you get the gospel into your own mind and there's a logical flow to it so you can actually feel the logical flow it also means that when you're talking about people you start to recognize what they're saying is box three that means i've got to go back to and i've got to go forward the rest you see and you learn how to share the gospel of the lord jesus with people so that's what two ways to live. It's, it's presented in a little booklet form, but we don't like giving out the booklet form. We'd much prefer people to learn it properly and then just write it as if it's your own. That's what it is. I had a friend, someone told me the other day, they saw it written out and they thought the bloke who did it was a genius. And then a few months later, he discovered that other people were learning the same thing too and the genius hadn't worked it out for himself. It also enables you to be flexible and say it in your own language once you've learned how to do it properly. I have a brilliant illustration to explain that to you, but it's cricket, so I won't tell you. <laughs> You'll just have to miss out on that subject. That one, uh, I'll try. Um, in most sports, when you teach the child how to play the sport, you teach them how to do it orthodoxly. This is the way to hold your baseball bat. This is the way to hold the football. This is the way to hold the tennis racket. And so you teach them the right way to do it. But the really good ones hardly ever do the orthodox things, do they? When you see the top liners, they've learned how to develop it for themselves. But you don't start doing it for yourself. You start the orthodox basic way first. And that's what this does for you. It gives you the basic orthodox outline to which over time, you learn your own particular way of expressing yourself and it becomes more natural. Now, if you haven't been trained in how to share the gospel with people, my guess is you won't. You see, we developed this on a university campus many years ago and we took them out into the streets around the university to share it with strangers. And what we noticed was very few strangers got converted. Some did, very few. But we also noticed that the students who shared it with, their, with the strangers saw their friends converted. And the students who didn't share it with their strangers didn't see their friends converted. Now what's the difference? Well, once you've shared it with strangers, you learn how to say it. You hear yourself saying it. You're, you gain confidence in being able to say it. So that when your friend says, why are you a Christian? You know how to do it. You know how to talk about it. But if you've never been trained, you've never said it, you've never had any practice or experience in doing it, then when your friend says, what's this about Christianity? You say, I must tell you someday. 
and you don't actually share the gospel with your friends. So, you want to evangelise? Well, you should if you're a Christian, even though you're scared of evangelism. That's good because you're a clay jar. That's great. And therefore, you need to be trained in evangelism. Well, there's lots of good courses, but the one we commend is this one because we think it actually has lots going for it in its, in its package. Now, do you want to ask Christians make comments? At all. I don't care what it's about. It's all right. It doesn't even have to be about what I've said, really. But we'll start on evangelism and move to other things. Your experience. Uh, people who, ba who share basic Christian experience, uh, background, like, uh, like a Roman Catholic, for example, box one, and we still got it up, about creation, they accept you move very quickly. Box two, they don't hear and understand. They think, yes, sin means I've done some naughty thing sometime, but I'm not really sinful. I'm not sinful. I just have done some sinful things. Right? And the concept of sin being the rejection and rebellion against God is quite foreign to them. They think sin is breaking rules, um, especially about sex. And so because they've broken a rule, they've watched pornography sometime or other, yes, I am a sinful person, I'm a sinner, but, you know, I've confessed that, that's gone, that's dealt with. And so they are constantly looking at the symptoms of sin and never the disease of sin. And therefore, they don't understand why Jesus had to die on the cross for them and they have no assurance of salvation. So when I'm dealing with a Catholic, I know I've got to slow down on box two. <laughs> and they'll accept it and we'll get right to the end with a Catholic and a religious person. And we say at the end when you're on box six with the two, two little men there, which of these best represents the way you live? And they always want to say, well, I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and we have to go back and say, no, there is no third way. There's only two ways. Why you think you're in the middle is because you haven't understood box two. You think doing a little bit of sin is acceptable, but you're not sinful. And you don't understand the reason you keep sinning is because you are sinful. Right? Out of the heart of man comes evil and uh, of all manner of lies and, and, and deceit, of, of greed, uh, of murder, of, of uh, false witness and uh, adultery. It all comes out of the heart. And so you keep on putting band-aids on your cancer. Let's go back and deal with the relationship with God. That's where you move with religious people. Yep. But the beauty of this is you present it, you know where the Roman Catholic is going to go to, you wait for it to happen and then take, it back, take him back to it. I sense there's potential uh, issue with sharing... Bible verses with somebody who doesn't know the Bible or who doesn't accept the Bible as God's word. Yep. Yep. Um, how do you overcome that? Especially, I'm not against writing out chapter and verse, but yep. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Uh, how I deal with it, which is not necessarily how it's dealt with in the magazine, you know, uh, in the program. How I deal with it has got to do is look. This is not just my opinion. This is basic Christianity and I'll show you where it is in the Bible so that you'll know that it's not just because I'm you know, I know you find this really difficult but I'm an Episcopalian you know now if you knew I was Episcopalian would you trust me <laughs> huh? would you trust me about to tell you the, the, the Christianity message faithfully and loyally uh, I wouldn't <laughs> huh? and so I say now let me show you that it's not just kind of weirdo Episcopalianism, which is um, uh, a tautology. Um, it's not weirdo uh, Episcopalian. This is what the Bible says. However, yes, I've got to be ready to the person who says, well, I don't believe the Bible anyway. Right? I can do it without putting the Bible verses on. I can say, well, these are the six things that Christians believe. Full stop. Or, these are the six things I believe. But, uh, I like showing them that it's come from the Bible. Two questions. Number one, I'm asking number one, which is not his question. Number one, uh, how many of you have previously seen this presentation of the gospel? Yeah, some of us. Good. Secondly, uh, Ian's question is, how many of you are finding 
or think the world is in America. I'll talk about a higher, let's be more specific. Youngstown, let's be even more. How many of you finding that the, that the society around you is more hostile to Christianity now than five, ten years ago? We have to have more courage, don't we? How do we move people to be talking about the gospel with us? See, in Australia, it is really hostile. We only have two to three percent of Australians who believe the Bible. Yeah, uh, or go to church in Protestant churches. Uh, so we're in a very different, more hostile environment than yours, um, uh, which is, is sad and it's bad. Australia is a lovely country, but just pagan, hedonism, materialism. Um, that's our country. And so people are very hostile, and all the more so because of uh, Muslims. We are put in the same category as the terrorists and Muslims. Uh, in, in their thinking. I'm a religious extremist. Religious extremists are bad, not Muslims. Religious extremists, they're a nice Muslims, you see. And so anybody who believes their religion and puts it into practice, they are the people we don't like. They're the baddies. Uh, uh, whereas all your candidates will, will tell you about their religious belief and use the word God, our candidates never do because you lose votes if you mention that you believe in God in Australia. So we are slightly more down the hostile end of the spectrum than you are. How do you get the talk about, uh, get the people ask about God? One of the keys is uh, uh, that we use in our training programs is to learn how to talk God talk. Now I don't know how much you need to talk God talk in this context uh, because God gets dropped in conversations left, right and centre. But one of our favourite words in Australia is, do you have a good weekend? It's a good word. Uh, it's one single word, have a good weekend. Uh, uh, which, if I slow it down, you might actually know it. Ha did you have a good weekend? It's like, g'day mate. It's just one word, you see. Uh, we're very good at sliding. We keep our mouths as closed as possible because we've got a lot of bushfires, you see. G'day mate. You can say it without opening your mouth. And say, so have a good weekend. So when you go back to work on Monday, they say, do you have a good weekend? And to which, if you're a Christian and you're talking to a non-Christian, you say, yeah, I saw the football game, you know, I saw the Steelers beat whoever, and, and so on, you discuss the football. If it's a Christian, you'll say, oh yeah, I was away in a conference and I actually was trained in this, this, this. And so we sanitise our language between the people. We censor ourselves. We're self-censoring. And then we wonder why the non-Christians never talk to us about Christianity, when we've actually kept the subject out. And so we train people, you know they're going to ask you. So you don't just say, oh yes, I went to church. Something, you've got to do better than that. You say, I had a really interesting sermon about, and then you tell them some of the sermon. Now, that, that trails your coat. They can jump on it or they can ignore it as they want. But at least you're giving the opportunity for the subject to be there and talked about. And so stop self-censoring. Stop God-censoring. And develop the skills of being able to just drop not just God but real faith into the conversations that you're involved in especially when you know Monday morning they're going to ask the question so set yourself up for uh, what do you call it coffee break elevenses uh, whatever it is that you have in this country coffee set it up for the coffee time well in Australia it's simple because we're a convict nation <laughs> you know, we don't have the great uh, hope of the, uh, of the universe resting on our shoulders. So it's not much of a problem. Whereas you kind of live in psychobabble land, don't you? Where everybody has always got to be self-esteem built up, built up. And every child... I, I, I used to love listening to Garrison Keylor. You know, where all the women are beautiful and all the children are above average. <laughs> it's a wonderful expression, isn't it? In um, What was the name of the place he was? Um, Lake Wobegon, yes, where all the women are beautiful and all the children are above average. Um, I, I enjoyed Garrison Keylor. Sorry if you don't know who I'm talking about, but he is an American. Uh, don't blame me. Um, and so it is a little difficult because there is so much that people call sin good these days. Right? In this whole self-esteem movement. And uh, we sang a hymn this morning. Uh, where uh, Sandy uh, pointed out to me there was changes in the words, quite significant changes in the words. Uh, man of sorrows. Um, I can't remember. Come up here and tell us what the words are that were left out, mate. Guilty by our 
guilty, vile and helpless we gets changed into something about I like God being close to me. You see, so we're actually even sanitising our hymns in church to, to do away with the, the awfulness of our sinful nature. <laughs> and certainly that's within the society and teaching self-esteem is very high in what you do with children. Well, the best self-esteem is the truth. That's the best self-esteem. Right? Because you then don't have to chase the ideal that you're not. Uh, poor, poor young women today and there's terrible, terrible problems that come with anorexia, bulimia and the like and finding the perfect shape for themselves and the rest of it. It's a failure to understand box one. God has created me. I am perfect bodily. Is my bodily shape and existence is this is perfection itself. Right? That is, I am the perfect Philip Jensen. I'm not the perfect you, but I'm the perfect. God made me this way. If he wanted me taller, I would be. If he wanted me shorter, I would be. If he wanted me to hang on my hair longer, I would. If he wanted me to have blue eyes, I would. He's just made me the way he's made me, and therefore I can be fully content with me as I am. I don't have to go out and bulk up in order to prove anything, you see. My bodily shape is accepted in the acceptance of God's creation of me. And likewise, I am a wretched sinner. And I've got to sort this out. I've got to, I mustn't be astonished when I do evil things, because when I do evil things, I'm doing my natural things. And I need to face that. And so, yes, it's at box one and two we're disagreeing with our community, <laughs> let alone get down to box five and six. That's why you need box one and two. There's no point just telling them Jesus loves you and died for you. They say, oh, whoopee-doo, so what? That's nice, I'm glad, thank you. It, box one and two is where you're preaching the gospel as much as box four, five, six. And you've got to reason with people and show them. And then I invent all kinds of different illustrations because I can't help it. I'll give you an illustration from uh, uh, my daughter. Um, See, so you don't have to teach your children to sin. They know how to do that already. You never have to teach your children. Now, you know, always take the last piece of cake for yourself. You know? Keep your own toys. Don't, play, don't let any other children play with your toys. Make, you never have to teach children that, do you? you know? Please be selfish. They, they, they get that one completely, don't they? Why, why is it that you don't have to teach children to do naughty things? Because already they are caught up in this human rebellion. So the very first sentence one of my daughters said, the full first full sentence, she stood there with a broken television aerial in her hand and said, my, said Matthew did it. <laughs> He'd been at school for several hours at this time, but that was her first full sentence, was sin. Yeah. That was a lie. Now, here's a simple illustration to have. You see, here's a sailor, a good sailor, a wonderful sailor. He, he, he does all the right things. He, he always stays on watch. He never gets back to ship late from uh, leave. He always obeys his commands. He does extra courses to know how to make sure he does his work very proficiently. When anybody else is sick in deck, he, below decks, he always takes food to them, looks after them, organises their shifts looked after, their watches looked after. He is the best sailor you could ever have. Now I'll tell you one more thing about him and you'll see how you should evaluate him. You see, he's a pirate. He flies under the, the Jolly Roger under the skull and crossbones. In fact, if he was a lousy sailor, he would hold the cause of piracy back. But because he's such a good sailor, he advocates piracy all the more. You don't judge a person by how well they do actions. You judge a person by which flag they're flying under. Are you flying under God's or under yours? Are you in rebellion against God or are you one of God's servants? Because that's what sin is about. Right? It's not breaking rules. In fact, it's making rules for yourself that is the nature of sin. So in preaching the gospel, you see, I'm trying to change people's whole mindset into the way God thinks rather than the way we think. That's the exercise. You can, have the, the, you can have the good sailor, free of charge, use it, don't have to footnote me, it's perfectly alright. 
I have a suspicion I, st I stole it from someone else, but so long ago I can't remember. <laughs> we all on board? Yep. Can I speak to the function of the law in evangelism? Yes. If I'm dealing with Jews, then I will use the law, because they believe in the Torah, to be able to talk to them about the condemnation of the nation and their condemnation. Now, you can also do it with a highly religious person. So, you can say to them, well, you know, you've got all the rules, you've got the Ten Commandments, do you keep them all? Uh, I had one woman, a university student, I remember saying, oh yes, I keep the Ten Commandments. I was with a very famous evangelist and uh, he then grilled her on them. He said, oh, so you have no other gods but God? Well, she said, I keep nine. Uh, you don't have any idol, well, I keep eight. You've never committed, and she just worked down, she got down to three. <laughs> she hadn't committed murder, she hadn't committed adultery, and she hadn't stolen anything lately. That's uh, because she was still a student, hadn't filled out a tax form yet. So, it, you know, and so you use the law to illustrate point two. But if people aren't accepting the law, doesn't matter. In Australia, they don't use the Ten Commandments anymore. Uh, we're very one third of Australians are Roman Catholic in, in tradition, uh, and so uh, much more common in Australia today is the seven deadly sins, which of course is not in the Bible, and they're not actually it, it's it's all wrong. But that's what they use, and so that's a little bit trickier in being able to demonstrate that everybody is failing God when it's not God's standards we're talking about. But you could still use them. You know, the, the good that I would, I cannot, I do not, and the bad that I don't want to do, I do, is fairly human nature. Uh, what you've got to do is help them see that the reason you're like that is because of the heart disease. That, that's really the problem. Now, if you have cancer in your heart, it'll spread tumours all over your body. But fixing each of the tumours doesn't save your life. You actually have to address the tumour in the heart. Now we keep on looking at the symptoms and ignoring what's on the heart. There's the problem. Now that's what Jesus in his death and resurrection has done for us. Yep. Ah, yes, if you're stuck in number four, you've got to go back to number three, haven't you? And see, how he became Lord was by laying down his life for you, that you will be forgiven completely and spared. And so, yes, you must obey him as Lord, but you obey him as Lord because you are forgiven. You don't get saved because you have him as Lord. So it's Lord and Saviour you need. Yep. How would you adjust that method if you would adjust it if you were witnessing to a Muslim? If I was visiting to a, a Muslim? Well, uh, the, the big one I'm going to say, the Muslim is going to accept number one. That's a problem. That's easy. They don't actually believe number two. Uh, they believe we're all perfect and we're being seduced away from perfection all the time. Uh, that's why women have to cover up because they are seducing men away from their perfect perfection uh, which is so uh, their view of number two is quite different to ours they will use sin and judgment and they will understand number three that there is judgment for sinners but they think they can be sinless so you have to again number two is often the place where you wind up having to have lots of arguments and discussions but they deny the fact of number three uh, number four, that is of Jesus' death. They say Jesus did not die. It's in the Quran. I think it's uh, Surah 157. No, I've got the wrong one. Anyway, it's in, the, it's in the Quran that Jesus did not in fact die. And so we have another conflict at that point. They believe Jesus is going to judge us at the end. And so what I need to say is not they're the Bible verses because they believe we've, we've distorted the Bible. 
So you actually have to be using it slightly differently there too. You have to say, well, this is in the angel, this is in the gospel, or this is what the prophets say. Because if you say it's the Bible, they don't believe it. But if you say it's the gospel or the prophet, they do. Because they've been told in the Quran to believe the gospel and the prophets, but not believe the Bible. So you've just got to change your language a little bit on those kinds of things to be able to show that this is what the Bible, this is what the gospel is saying. Right, and so you talk about. I'm going to show you what the gospel and the, the Arabic word for gospel is injil, I N J I L. You know, let me show you what the injil says. Uh, I've got a friend in Tasmania who's a great uh, evangelist amongst Muslims, and uh, he's produced a Bible that's not called the Bible, it's called the Prophets and the, and the Gospel, uh, so as to help people who are Muslims accept the book and then read it for themselves. Uh, and he would also. Uh, express this differently these six points but you, you know where your pressure points are going to be if it's a Muslim it's going to be on the fact of Jesus death so you need to have the historical evidences ready to go for Jesus death because that's where they disagree now there's a theological argument I use with Muslims but it's not there that is Allah is all merciful yes yes Allah is all just yes yes well, how can he be both? If he's all merciful, he's going to forgive me. If he's all just, he's going to condemn me. So which is he going to do, and how can he do both at the same time? They have no answer for that. And so I said, but I've got an answer for it. The cross. Because in the cross, he is completely just, taking the punishment of sin upon himself, and is able to be completely merciful. He is just to forgive sins. It's in one... John chapter 1, that God is faithful and just to forgive. You think God is faithful and merciful to forgive, but God is faithful and just to forgive because he has paid the penalty for our sin in the cross. And so it resolves the, the Muslims' theological tension between justice and mercy. But, you know, I don't know how many Muslims you're going to be evangelising in Ohio. Uh, you start with your friends and if you're moving to Muslims you need to have some special courses on Muslim evangelism because it is there are all kinds of wrinkles in evangelizing Muslims are just slightly different yep well there we go are we all happy are we all hanging out for the food that's over here on the side and Marty to lead us in prayer or something like that is that what we're doing and some other day I'll come back to Ohio and tell you about evangelism in the church. In the meantime, get on with it. Well, we'll do that. Uh, thank you again. Uh, I know it's a beautiful evening out. Thank you for sacrificing your time, efforts to come on out and uh, maybe blessed by this time. Thank you for Philip uh, for coming over. Um, thank you. Thank you for the coffee team who got this spread out.